The topic that we're going to address this evening is developing a base church culture. There are many wonderful pictures of the church throughout the pages of the Bible. Um, if we look to the Old Testament, we see the church model of Moses' tabernacle, the temple in the wilderness. We have a picture moving on from that of David's tabernacle, which was far more relaxed, where worship was more the style. Uh, we move through the Old Testament to the first temple, which Solomon built with the awesome presence of God, which descended. You have a picture of the second temple that was built after the first temple was destroyed. And then we move into the New Testament, and we have many, many wonderful insights into how to build a authentic New Testament church. Your notes start from page 181 and they move through to page 196 I think it is, or 195 and in the notes they start off with um, listing seven odd churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Antioch, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, and the church at Rome. And um, in the notes, they are extracted out of those churches, living examples of cultures that those churches gave themselves to build. So we've got enough material to help us and to assist us. And so as I was saying, when you start, when you transition a church as I did, or when you start and you plant a church, just if God gives you this blank piece of paper and you get to work with Him to build the church uh, that He has in His heart. And so there are many cultures that you can give yourself to. Every church is unique and different. Every church has mixed in it the vision that God has given for that community together with the personality of the folk that are leading it and the leadership team and the characteristics of the people that will join that church. And together, you're able to create this incredibly beautiful thing that reflects the image of God and the life of Christ. At the end of the day, it is about the image of God and the life of Christ. I thought it would be helpful for us, first of all, to just look at what a culture is, break that down, and then look at how we can influence culture so that we can um, adjust the behavior in a group. Uh, and uh, the example I want to use is that of an apple. Here we have an apple. This apple consists of three parts. You have the skin, which you can see, hopefully. You have, as I cut this, being careful not to cut myself. As I cut this, you have the skin, which is the outer exterior, which everyone can see. You have the fleshy part, which is the juicy part to eat. And then you have the core that's in the middle. A culture can be viewed like this apple um, in the terms of a metaphor. And so a church culture, or any culture really, includes three aspects. The outside, the flesh, and the core. The outside is behavior. The fleshy part is values and the core is belief or conviction. So each church culture is made up of a core belief, fleshy value, 
and the outer behavior which you see. So if we want to consider the peel, the behavior, this includes all that you would see, hear and feel as you encounter the congregation. Worship styles change and are different in different churches. The nature of the sermons are different. The sermon topics are different. The way they presented are different. Some preachers shout a lot. And there's a culture of shouting in the church. Others are very quiet and soft. And um, there'd be a culture of that in the church. Um, what you see involves the signage. The signages of the decor, the signages, all of that um, is what you see on the outside. And so we can define a culture as the way we do things around here. So your culture would be the way you do things. Uh, it will answer the question, why do you do that? Why do you worship the way you do? Why do you fellowship the way you do? Why is the church decorated the way it's, to, it's done? So if we start at the behavior part, this, the, the peel part, um, we see that that's affected by the values and that's affected by the core. And so the second element of a culture would be the value, this nice fleshy bit that one eats. So the values are those beliefs that the church actually live out. And so values denote, denote what the church cares about the most. Uh, and that would be this fleshy thing. And so you can see that just by being with the folk in the church. Um, very often people would preach, but the behavior would be different. So the values are those that the church actually get to live out. Then the third element of a culture is the um, beliefs, which are the core convictions. These are opinions, these are convictions that the church holds to be true, about the church and the way that um, it is to be built to honor God. <clears throat> when beliefs are acted upon, they become values. Values determine behavior. And so if we've got that in our mind, it helps us to influence the different values that we want in the life of the church. Strategies come and go. I mean, every year we go away as an eldership team, and most churches do, and we strategize for the next year. Strategies come and go. Culture is deeply embedded. Um, Peter Drucker, who was a well-known writer with business management, said, cultures eat strategy for breakfast. So in other words, it's the culture that determines the behavior not the wonderful strategies that we bring to the church. It is the culture that will determine the behavior. So a key to effective church leadership is to understand the church's culture as it presently is and to help to influence and shape it into a more biblical way for the future. And so how do we actually influence culture? How do we actually develop or build this base culture that um, we are talking about and are going to talk about this evening. Well, there are three, primarily three ways in which we influence and which we can shape the culture, which will ultimately end up in us behaving in a way that will 
be obedient to God's commands and His will and His way for us as a group of people. The first way that we shape, we get to shape culture is through the power of the Word of God. Effective leaders shape the church's culture in ways that reflect obedience to the Word of God. And so if there's a culture of evangelism that we're wanting to build, then we take God's Word and we present God's Word uh, around the topic or the subject of evangelism. We try to um, encourage the people to receive that as a value and to live it. Once they live that value, it becomes behavior. And folk coming into the church can see, gee, you guys really attach importance to evangelism because that's all we hear. Guys going out here, there, uh, testimonies of people sharing the Word of God and also testimonies of people getting saved. And so wise leaders will take the Word of God and present what the Word of God says about a certain culture that you're wanting to build and then present that to the people. The most powerful way then to shape and change a church's culture is through teaching God's Word on that topic. The most effective way of addressing people's deeply held assumptions and beliefs is to teach God's Word. We are incredibly blessed being part of the NCMI family in that Dudley came with a revelation, a deposit of truth, and he opened up for us the inner workings of local church. He gave us insight into the engine room of a New Testament church. Um, <clears throat> there are many of his uh, sermons and teachings that just opened up for us and opened up our understanding of, gee, does th is this what an authentic New Testament church looks like? He spoke to us about the message. Our message has to be the kingdom of God. He spoke to us about the mandate, which has to be to go. We are going and we are sending people. He spoke to us about our mission, that this core of what we are is the nations, that we are to go to the nations, to disciple the nations. He spoke to us about our modus operandi. In other words, the way that we govern the church is through eldership-led churches, where elders take on the mantle and the responsibility of leading the church uh, and the people follow. He spoke to us about many things, but it was all out of a revelation and a deposit of truth from the Word of God. So if you want to establish a culture, use the power in the Word of God to create, develop, shape um, that culture. The second way in which we develop and sustain a culture in the life of the church is through the power of leadership. Leadership is absolutely key. Where we focus the church and the church's member on the future, absolutely vital and essential. So many times I've sat with uh, church planters and they've told me what they're not going to do. In other words, they've looked at the churches that they've come from or churches that they've been involved in, and they said, we are not going to do that, we are not going to do that, we are not going to do this. And very rarely do you hear what you are going to do. So it's absolutely essential that, you, that there's clarity in your mind around the cultures that God wants you to shape and to build and to develop in the life of the church that you are going to plant or 
if, you, if needs be, if you're going to transition. So there's a number of ways that a leader can impact the culture. And uh, I've got a few of them here, and I'll just mention them briefly. A leader can impact culture, first of all, by setting direction and casting vision. Um, when we set the vision, if we pick up on the prophetic voice of God as He speaks to us and as He leads us, as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and as we begin to cast vision and to set direction, that helps to shape and to develop the culture. The second way a leader can shape culture is through language and terminology. It's very interesting for me that in the early days of NCMI, there were certain phrases that took on really important meanings. They were little vehicles that drove the values of what God was doing amongst us. So, for example, phrases like, friends before function. That became a rallying cry. Everybody got taught that. Everybody understood that we are friends before function. Um, what you get saved into is more important than what you got saved out of. Little catchphrases that, that carry immense truth. Um, going to the nations was another phrase that, that um, was packed with meaning. And so we influence culture with terminology and language. And so for me it has been an, an, an amazing object lesson to preach something, cast vision, say so guys we are, we're going to build this this year in the life of the church. We're going to take the value of family, let's say. We're going to build intentionally into family and begin to speak the language of family and then listen to people praying prayers at our prayer meeting and they begin to pray phrases that, that I have kind of made up in casting the vision. And that's when I know it's getting into people's hearts. So we can shape culture by the language and the terminology that we use. We need to be very accurate and they can be very helpful tools in spreading the vision that we have for the church. A third way in which we leaders are able to influence culture is through the way that we respond in moments of crisis. People are watching your lives. If uh, and people are watching particularly how the leaders are dealing with these last few months that we've had to walk through. If we lose it, panic, um, filled with fear, etc., that will shape a culture in your church that you don't want. But if you lead through crisis, through potentially dangerous places and incidents and occurrences that happen in the life of the church, if you lead with confidence, if you lead with a firm faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that speaks volumes in the cultures that you're trying to develop. Whenever you're trying to, trying to develop a culture, there will be opposition. And so it's how you deal with that opposition that establishes the culture. Another way that leaders can shape culture is through personal example and through just persuasive personal influence. You be the example. You be the model of the culture that you're hoping to establish in the life of the church. And so we get to shape culture through leadership and through the Word of God. The third way that we get to shape culture is through the power of community. When the community, when the core group and beyond that buy into the value and buy into the conviction 
and alter behavior. There's a tremendous momentum that's released when key stakeholders get on board and begin to live out uh, and to shape the value. So, for example, one of the reasons the Jerusalem church was so effective was because they understood the value and the culture of teamwork. They worked as a team. And um, because they were able to do that, they achieved a lot of success. So I really hope that that has been helpful as we've looked at culture. Culture consists of the appeal, what you see, the behavior. Consists of the values, the fleshy part. And it consists of this core, which is the inner core convictions that we hold to. So it's the core that influences the values that when they are lived out, affects the behavior and we are able to shape culture through the word of God through effective and powerful leadership and through the weight of the community getting behind it so having said all of that I would love us to turn to the notes and what I plan to do is to go through um, some of the cultures that were established in the church at Ephesus. It's the first one on in your notes on this section at page 181. The notes, as I say, are set up where there are, I think there are seven churches that are, are examined and analyzed and out of them are extracted certain cultures or certain characteristics and then from page Then from page 191, you have a compilation of 14 characteristics or cultures that you can build in the church. I follow every now and again American gridiron football. And there was a really famous player who's still playing, Tom Brady, who played for the Patriots. He's just moved to teams. And um, his first game for his new team didn't go all that well. And he is an absolute legend. I think he's just under 40 years of age. He's won five or six Super Bowls. And uh, his team lost. And so they were questioning him in an after-match interview. And he, sa he said this, and I thought it was so profound. He said, winning the game is a byproduct of doing a lot of things the right way. So we get an opportunity to do a lot of things the right way. There are a number of cultures that we have to build in the life of the church. In Dudley's manual, he lists something like 42 faces of the church, cultures that we're able to, to work on. It is impossible for us and our people to hit them with those 42 all at once. And so I've over the years asked God to give me at least three cultures that I can concentrate on, that I can preach into, that I can pray into, that I can strategize, set up vision for in the life of the church. I find personally that we can't really cope in a year with much more than three cultures. But we've got to learn to do a lot of things well. The byproduct is that we, we will win. There's also another very interesting um, philosophical statement that uh, is very profound. And I want to share that with you. It says the following. A half-truth presented as the whole truth is a distortion which becomes an untruth. 
And I've seen this in church plants and I've seen this in churches where you take one culture, let's just say the culture of worship, and you make out as if that's the whole truth. So worship is certainly a truth and we're called to build a culture of worship. But we cannot build a church only on worship. And so, for example, if we set up everything around worship, we're going to have long sessions of worship, minimal preaching of the word, minimal fellowship, minimal evangelism, minimal going to the nations, but we're going to be a worship people. The truth is distorted, and in the end of the day, that truth becomes an untruth. We are called to, do, to build many cultures into the life of the church over a long period of time. And to ensure that those cultures that are waning are stirred up again. And so I want us to look at the cultures that Paul introduced into the church at Ephesus from the beginning. Um, this is an absolutely wonderful study for you. Um, it's, uh, in, we find it in Acts chapter 19 from verses 1 to 27. It's a lengthy passage of scripture. Paul arrives at Ephesus. He meets a group of disciples and he begins to build. And we can extract um, base church culture that he instituted and that he um, put into the church right at the beginning without having to wait for years and years and years. So it's a great exercise for us as we look at how Paul operated and um, we pick out from that certain cultures that were important to him. So, I won't read the scripture, we just don't have time for that this evening, but um, I will take out certain passages. So, the first culture that we are confronted with is right in verse 1. It said, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? A strange question. He arrives, and the first thing he does is he does an audit around the gospel. And so the first culture that we're confronted with that was important for Paul to build was a gospel preaching uh, culture. And so they say to him, um, no, we haven't even heard that there's Holy Spirit. So obviously in their behavior and in their language, Paul picked up that these guys don't know about the Holy Spirit. And so he questions them. So the Holy Spirit was a really important part of the gospel message that was missing. And so he does a tune-up. You know, you take your car into a garage and he tune, they tune it up, they change the spark plugs and they make sure everything's working, the brakes, etc. And he does a tune-up and he starts asking them, he says, now this gospel. And he goes through the different aspects of the gospel so that they are presented with the full package. And not some half-truth along the way. So they say they don't know. They've never heard there's a Holy Spirit. So then he says, what baptism did you receive? So now he delves down deeper and he's beginning to question them. The understanding of baptism, etc. So they say, we received John's baptism. And he says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul places his hands and the Holy Spirit comes and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So the only indication that we have 
that, uh, upon which Paul based his assumption that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit was that there was no prophesying and speaking in tongues. And so that's a whole wonderful question for us to explore. But he picks up that they don't have the full gospel. And so he's really um, at pains to place the first culture into the life of the church is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A correct understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with every single aspect um, fully explained, fully in place, and fully experienced. So out of his discussion with them, they get baptized, they get hands laid on them, they receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. So when you build a church, one of the fundamental cultures that has to be at the center of what you're doing is an accurate representation of the gospel. Don't be scared to ask people. People come to us from other churches, they come to us from other persuasions, and sometimes they come to us with a defective gospel, or a gospel that has taken one aspect and blown it out of all proportions and taken that aspect as the truth. Paul was really, really important uh, for him to build this culture of an accurate representation of the gospel. The second one we pick up is in verse 8 to 10. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So he established the gospel on solid ground. He then began to teach about the kingdom of God. And we understand the kingdom of God to be the reign and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, truth was unpacked. He would, uh, and that's his theme right through the book of Acts. And you can pick up passages everywhere where it says he taught them the kingdom of God. He would have gone through the discourses of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and began to flesh out and to unfold this kingdom that the gospel enters us into. So the doors of the kingdom open when we receive the gospel in its fullness. And he begins to explain the lifestyle, um, the promises, the inheritance. Peter talks in 1 Peter 2 verse 4, he talks about us participating in the divine nature. So he says, you, uh, you have been set free from corruption and sin. And you're free to participate in the divine nature of Christ. And so Paul begins to unpack all of these concepts to them. So it became a teaching center. The third one flows from that is a culture of discipleship. He had obviously taken those disciples that he met, to whom he'd explained the proper gospel, and he began to disciple them. He says, but some, um, so Paul left them, he took the disciples with him, and had discussions daily in the lecture halls of Tyrannus. So in other words, Paul imparted and impacted the lives of the disciples on a daily basis. There was a culture of discipleship. And so right in these first few verses, we see there's a, a, a culture of accurately preaching the gospel. There's a culture of teaching the kingdom of God. And there's a culture of discipleship that we find immediately as we look at this passage. That discipleship was just not just a teaching, it was an equipping 
and a releasing. And we see that from what happens later on. The next culture that Paul was really um, eager to establish in that fledgling church, we pick up in verse 11. So God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and the illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Extraordinary miracles of healing, as a natural outflow of the life of God that Paul experienced. They never knew a gospel without power. Because when the gospel was properly explained to them, they received the Holy Spirit and the outflow was signs, miracles and extraordinary miracles as the Bible tells us. Um, I can remember once taking a group of guys deep into Malawi, we drove for days on a footpath. There wasn't a road, we had 4x4 vehicles. The one wheel was on the, the footpath and the other wheel was in the bush. And uh, we arrived at a village late one afternoon, say at 4 o'clock, began to unpack everything and set up for a meeting. The people had been waiting for us for days, they were singing uh, very jubilantly as we arrived. And getting out of the vehicle, a lady who was blind came to us together with a few others and said, won't we please pray for her healing? We were all fired up because we traveled a long way, we were ready, and a group of guys began to pray for her healing. And the great miracle was that her eyes opened. There was a tremendous outpouring of joy and excitement amongst the people. And because of that miracle, the news of what had happened to her spread like wildfire through that district. And a few hours later, about three or four hours later, when we had our meeting, there was a sea of people. We, there was obviously no electricity. We had a generator and one light bulb. And um, as we looked at the crowd, as they were gathering, as far as you could see, there were people. And many, many people came to know Jesus through the preaching of the Word that had gathered, the people had gathered because of the miracle of the healing. And so miracles are definitely part of the kingdom. I've seen with my own eyes some amazing miracles and the spill-off effects that it have in making it easier and facilitating the preaching of the gospel. And so this was a healing power center. Not only was people healed, but they also, uh, demons were cast out and the, the demonic was um, rebuked and left the folk. The fifth one that we can talk about is it became a center or a culture of authority and power in the word of God. Um, we see this from verse 13 to verse 20. There's this incident about some Jews went around driving out evil spirits and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding and so this 
there was a sense, as Paul dealt with the situation, it was a culture of power and authority in the Word of God was established. People were able to use the name of Jesus and see power being released. And there was a culture that was developed and that was built in this church. And so I'd encourage you to keep that also at the forefront of the values that you can and the cultures that you're going to give yourself to. That the authority of God will be a culture that we're going to establish and develop in the church that you're going to build. The next one in terms of the notes is uh, the sixth one is to become a worship center or a worship culture. Verse 17 says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So the name of the Lord Jesus was held high in honor and in worship. Um, the whole city was impacted because there's further on a number of those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. God got the glory for what they were doing. As they, his name was held in high honor, in high esteem, as his name was worshipped, as the people worshipped him, so it began to change the hearts of those that uh, came under the influence. Then the next one, number seven, says they became a, they developed a sending and a church planting culture. You see, this is from verses 21 and 22. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. So they sent him to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erasmus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. And so there's a culture, an apostolic culture of releasing and sending people. He sent people out, he stayed for a season, went out for a season. And as his disciples began to become genuine, authentic Christ followers, so they followed his example and they did the same. And so a culture that we need to develop is a sending and a going uh, culture. And you can do that right from word go, right from day one, is to instill and to teach and to um, exercise by example what it means to be a sending and a going people. Um, and our vision and our dream is to have people outside of the life of the church every single day of the week. That we'd have teams going out, that we'd be affecting people in this nation and in nations further afield. Then, in terms of your notes, number nine became impact center. Not only did it impact the disciples, and the people that came to know Christ through the work of the church at Ephesus. But it also impacted the city. Um, we saw those folk that had practiced sorcery. They brought their scrolls and they burnt them publicly when they came to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the whole city, businesses were impacted by the gospel as it came. So there was a, a culture of reformation, not just revival. Revival leading to reformation of the entire city. And so I encourage you to have a view on impacting the city that you're in. That you develop a culture 
that says we're here for the benefit of the city. And take it just wider than the suburb or the area or the building that you're in, but that you'd consider the needs of the city and that you'd impact the city. And Paul did that immediately with, uh, when he started this group at, uh, at Ephesus. And then there are a few cultures on page 186 that are inferred. The resource culture at point J, um, they obviously had to release resources, both finances and um, human resources for people to travel as they constituted their teams and as they sent them out. And then what's also inferred is a model center that became an example. One of the challenges when we begin to work in a new nation is to establish an example of what an authentic New Testament church looks like. Once we've been able to establish that, we can reach out to other groups and other people and say, come and have a look at what we're doing. One of the things that Dudley taught us is that we cannot export what we are doing unless it works at home. And so to get these cultures to work in your church plant gives you authority, it gives you credibility to export those cultures. You can't go and talk about something that you're not experiencing and living in yet. Uh, people just pick up very clearly and very easily that, that um, that's not the reality of what you, what you are bringing. And then the, the one thing that we, we cannot leave without considering the Ephesians is their love for God. In the book of Revelation, in the seven letters to the church, the warning that the church at Ephesus receives, this warning of all these, this church that we've discussed now, all the cultures that were operating in the life of the church, the one warning that they get is that they to be careful of not losing their first love. And so John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, return to your first love. And there's an indication in church history that they listened and that they did respond positively to the warning. About 200 years later, one of the early church fathers writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And in that letter, he commends them for their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it seems from the pages of history that that church of Ephesus that was established with so many godly cultures and that looked as if it was in the, the danger of losing their first love managed to restore their first love for God and 200 years later they are recommended by one of the early church fathers for returning to their first love. And for the many martyrs that have come from that because of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the book of Ephesus, or rather the church at Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, is a great passage of scripture to read, to study, and to draw out these cultures. And then determine in your heart, what is the flavor of the church that God is calling you to plant and build. What does that flavor look like? And to take a few of these cultures and say, right from the word go, I'm going to ensure that we start building these cultures. We build culture through the word of God, the accurate teaching of the word of God, 
through effective leadership and through the momentum that's released when a community grabs hold of a core value. They live that out as a, as a core vision rather. They live that out as a value and you can see it as the skin or the peel at the, apple, at the end of the apple. So, for the last time, core convictions, values, translated into behavior. God bless you as you continue to seek His face, as you continue to build that which is unique to your calling, your vision, and to your personality, and to the, the, the nature of the folk and the characteristics of the folk that you're going to draw 